you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 24, I suppose, though I'm going to be covering a lot of ground, a lot of scripture today, so uh, we might kind of kick it off in Matthew 24, and then we are going to be all over the place. Um, Matthew 24, but we are rooting everything out of Galatians chapter 5, talking about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, but also talking about the attributes of God and kind of marrying these two ideas that, that the fruit of the Spirit is born out of the nature of who God is. So uh, Galatians 5 is, is kind of the overarching theme for the next several, uh, the next several weeks, several months really. And then uh, talking about the attributes and the nature uh, of God. So as you open up there and get your Bibles open to the book of Matthew, I want to ask you, what do you want out of life? Now, that sounds like a pretty big question. I suppose it probably is, but I wonder how often you've thought about that question yourself. Some of you may be kind of bigger picture thinkers, and you've thought of that a lot. Other of you may be kind of just moment by moment, let's just get through the day type of people, and maybe you haven't thought about that as much. But I want to ask you, what do you want out of life? What are your goals Maybe more specifically, what is your goal, your singular goal? Do you have a personal mission statement? I wonder, show of hands, has anybody written out like a personal mission statement or maybe even a family mission statement? Ever, anybody ever written out anything like that? No? All right, well, all right, so we got, we've got one. So uh, I, I know some people do that. Some people will write out a personal mission statement, kind of what their life is to be uh, about. Some people... Most of you, apparently, don't do that at all. Um, some people really like those, and some people just like to lay out some goals. Maybe you've got a checklist of things that you want to make sure that you have accomplished. You want to say, by the time I'm 25, I want to be here. By the time I'm 35, I want to be here. By the time I'm 50, I want to be here. I want to retire by the time I'm 52 and a half, and then I want to travel the world. That's the goal for a lot of people. Um, good luck on those goals. I don't, I, I remember going through this process a couple of different times. Uh, I was in business school whenever I was at ETSU. This was something you talked about a lot, how to set goals, how to make smart goals, smart, oh, see, what is it? I don't even remember what it is now. Measurable, attainable, achievable. I can't even remember. It's something like that. Smart goals. Um, you can see how that education worked for me. Uh, but you want to make, you want to make all these goals and kind of set them out and say, this is what I want to get out of life. And I can remember some of those that I, I set out and I don't think any of those are applicable to me at all now because, uh, my plans and my goals don't always line up with, with God's and things go a different, uh, direction. So I, maybe some of y'all created your 2020 vision for life five years ago. How's that 2020 vision going for you uh, now here in 2020? I'm guessing things got a little derailed for you too. Um, nobody's vision works out perfectly. But I wonder if you have one at all and what your goals are. How did you come to that? How did you decide what it is? If someone were to ask you, what is the ultimate goal of your life? What is the most important thing that you want to make sure that you can say about yourself? And I know we're in church, so you're immediately going to think of a spiritual answer, but let's just be honest. What would your real answer be? Another way to ask this question would be to ask the question, what does it mean for you to be successful in life? If you were to get back 20, 30 years from now, look back on your life, and you were to say, I was successful, 
what would that mean has happened in your life since then? All right, so I want to illustrate a point here. So Isaiah, come on, come on up. I've got Isaiah, this is my son Isaiah, uh, to, to come up here, and he, he's going to help me make a point. I'm going to sit this over here uh, to the side. Now, he's not super excited about being up here. This is not really his, his thing, but uh, he's got this, this gun, this, this Nerf gun. Now, most Nerf guns that, that you might be aware of are, are kind of like this one where you've got the darts, right? And so it shoots kind of like that. So that's a pretty good little Nerf gun. And if I shot it out there, as long as I didn't hit you in the eye, you would probably be okay, right? But then there's one of, one of these guns, and it's a little bit different. This is a Nerf rival gun. I don't know, hey, anybody shot one of these Nerf rival guns before? All right, so, so, so a few of you. Zayat, can you, can you pull that back? And then here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to shoot and hit the target. Can you do that? What do you mean? So there's no target? Well, so what's he supposed to shoot at? Me. Yeah, that's probably right. That's the default target. If there is no target, I'm the target. That, that's how that works uh, a, a lot. So if there's no target for you to shoot at, how do you know where you're supposed to aim? Should you just aim at like random people out here? You think so? He thinks so. What I might, what I might do, uh, this was actually a, a, su- a suggestion from, from David Crowes. I might have Isaiah sit back here behind me, you know, like old school bishop style, and just look out for people that are falling asleep, and then have him shoot them as people are falling asleep during, during the sermon. That, that may be actually a lot of fun. That would spice things up in here just, uh, just a little bit, and I'll keep this right here by my side so that I can, I can be a quick draw too. Maybe, maybe you guys will stay awake for that. So, so if you don't have a target to shoot at, how do you know where to aim? You don't. That's right. You don't. Uh, and, and that's really kind of the point. If you don't have a target to shoot at, then you don't know where you're supposed to aim. Now, what if I were to tell you that, uh, that this right here is going to be, be your target? And I tell you what, I'm going to sit it right over here. I'm going I'm to move this out of the way. I'm going to sit this right here. Now, if I were to tell you that that is the target... You'd know where to aim, right? If I said, now shoot and hit the target, what if you shot out there? Would you be aiming at the right target? But what if somebody else told you that was the target out there? It wouldn't matter. It's, it's, it, only, it, it only matters to the person who's in charge what they tell you the target is, right? Right? All right. So that, that's the deal. So here, I'm going to give you a shot in front of everybody. Let's see if you can hit the target. Oh, so you just missed it just a little bit. Try it one more time. Boom. So he nailed it. So, so this is nice. This gun is a little bit different. It doesn't have quite the, the, the it, it doesn't, it's not as nice as this one is. You, you get hit with one of these, it's going to, it's going to sting. Look at that. I made it come right back. There you go. All right, you can go sit down. Thanks, buddy. So he got that thing for Christmas like two years ago, and I didn't know what it was. But like on the box, it showed people playing with those things with masks on and like they were playing like full paintball type thing. And I was like, it's just nerf. People are being silly. All these lawsuits. So I loaded the thing up, and I, and I put it all together for him, and I shot the thing in the house. I thought I was going to break a window. It scared me to death. I was not expecting that thing to shoot with the power that it shoots with. It's, it's a lot of fun. But... Uh, 
the point that I want to illustrate here is that much of life is about knowing not just where the target is, but making sure you pick out the right target. And if you set your life up to pursue a goal that's the wrong target, you're going you're gonna to miss every single time. Even if you hit the target, it's not going to be exactly what you want it to be or what you think that it is that you're aiming for. So all of life, your life will be framed, about, or framed around your decision about how to pick the right target. And then once you pick that target, then you can begin to aim and head in the right direction. Some measure of this question is before us every day of our lives. In the short term, success, that question, what does it mean for you to be successful? In the short term, success can feel uh, something like just making it to the end of the day or making it to your bed so you can go to sleep. That is the definition of success. Sometimes it feels like finishing the class with an A, and other times it may feel like just making it to the end of the semester at all is success. Sometimes success feels like, uh, feels like a, 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 in marriage, feels like a, a great date night where you go and you get to hang out and the stars are out and all is wonderful. And other times in, in, in marriage, success just feels like not fighting that day. And it may look a little bit different each time. In parenting, it can be much the, the, the same. Success can feel like a, a, a mature, well-adjusted, God-loving, respectful child. And other times, it can be just the fact that you both made it to the end of the day and you didn't kill each other. Right? Success can be defined in a lot of different ways whenever we talk about it. And it's all about where we decide to put the target. And my hope this morning is that we would be able to walk out of here with a better target than the one that the world hands to us. The targets that they put up, and I see this in my head, kind of like, uh, like you, you, you know, the, the, the fair games at Dollywood where they have the, like, the, the squirt guns, and they've got the one single target you're supposed to hit, but then there's also like targets all over the place that tell you you can get this many points for this and this many points for this. I feel like this is what the world does for us. They try to distract us with all kinds of other targets, things like money and power and education and safety and security and comfort. Those are all understandable targets. Those are all targets that are easy for us to see, easy for us to, to desire, and understand why we want those targets. But let me just tell you, they are weak and insufficient targets. They will not sustain. They are false goals. With those things, you will, if you manage to hit the target, which is always an elusive target, where, where, where do you finally have enough money? Where do you finally have enough education? Where do you finally have enough comfort and enough security? It's almost impossible to hit those targets. But if you manage to hit those targets, what you'll realize is that it's not quite what you thought it would be. And that those targets are often moving around. And sometimes when you hit them, it's kind of like being, being at the fair and, and there's the giant stuffed animal that you think that you've won, but then after you, you win the prize, they pull it out and it's like the tiny stuffed animal. And they're like, no, 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 you have to play 15 more times before you can, and win before you can win the, the big stuffed animal. We just got the little one for you. And then you walk away feeling ripped off and gypped and saying, no, 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 no. I, I, I invested money in that. I invested time and skill in that. 
I was supposed to get a bigger reward for that. And that's the targets that we've been given. Jesus says it this way. He says, he says not to pursue those type of things that, that seem to just fade away, but to pursue a bigger and a better target. This is the way he says it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's telling his disciples there in the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to find a better target. You've got to look for better things. Your eyes, your heart, your money, they're all pursuing the wrong thing. And in the end, it's things that will fade away and they will be gone. Lift up your eyes, lift up your hearts, and find what matters. One target at a time and set your eyes there set your target there this happens in church life too we can set good goals in our lives and make them our standard for success we can take what is a good goal what is a good thing to pursue and make it an ultimate goal maybe that's bible study and scripture memory good goals but even non-christians can do that so they must be insufficient goals They cannot be how we determine success. You cannot get to the end of the week and say, this was a successful week because I memorized this and because I knew this and because I studied this and I did my quiet time six times this week. Maybe seven if you count count what we're doing this morning here at church. I did my, my quiet time seven times this week. It was a successful week. We have to have a better definition of success than that. Maybe your definition of success is raising godly children, children who love God. That no doubt should be one of our goals, but it cannot be the ultimate goal for us as parents because ultimately that is going to be out of our hands. Many Christians have considered themselves failures because their children did not follow them in the faith and they did not, they did not go in the direction that, that the parents had, had prayed and they've collapsed under the, the weight of that feeling and the weight of that reality as though, as though because their, their, their children have not followed uh, as they have prayed, then they have somehow failed. On and on we could go. <clears throat> Pastors and churches are not immune to this either. So many can define success by church size or church budget or the scope of our programs, but that is never the goal laid out anywhere in Scripture. This morning, what we're going to talk about is what our measure of success is as a Christian. We're going to talk about faithfulness. Love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, faithfulness. That's what we're talking about this morning is faithfulness. That is our target. And I want to I begin by setting that target out for us as clearly as I can. And I'm telling you, I'm just going to rapid fire going through all kinds of scripture this morning, just, just trying to build the target for us. It's the goal for most of the morning. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. This is Jesus telling a parable to his disciples. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He's talking about when, when he will return uh, to, to, to judge. And this is the parable he says. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field and one will be, one will be taken and one left. Two, men will be grinding, two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know on what day, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this: that if the master of the house had known in part in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then he says this: Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So Jesus lays out a target for us here. He, he talks about kind of these common happenstances, these things going on all around them. He says that part of our problem is not only that we're aiming at the wrong thing, but we don't know when we're going to be called into account for what we are aiming at. It is easy enough for us to talk about how one day we'll come around to the life that we've been called to. How one day we will adjust our sights. Let us just, let us just accomplish a few different things and then we will move our sights. So we'll head towards this target until we get close enough and then we will adjust our sights and become what God has called us to do. We'll get there one of these days. But today, today is a busy day. Today is hard. Today is a just get through it kind of day. Jesus says there will always be get through it kind of days. From the days of Noah until now, there will always be days where we get, we get caught up in just trying to, to make it. And Jesus says, don't let those days become weeks, and those weeks become months, and those, those months become years that become a lifetime. It is too easy to say, tomorrow will be the day that I will follow the Spirit. Tomorrow will be the day that I will choose to follow Jesus. Today's my day to get the laundry done, to get the dinner cooked, to get the yard mowed, and to take the kids to baseball. Tomorrow will be the day that I'll follow Jesus. Today is the day that I just try to get stuff done. And Jesus is saying there will come a day when we will all give account for what he has given us and for who we are following. And when that day comes, there will still be laundry to be done. There will still be baseball practices to go to. There will still be work to finish. There will still be meals to prepare. And Jesus warns that to be the faithful servant, the faithful and wise servant, this is the one that will be doing what Jesus, what God has called him to do. And that is the stewarding, the time, and the resources you have been given. Now don't misunderstand me. We have life that we have to do. It's not wrong to take your kids to practice. It's not wrong to do the, the laundry. In fact, I very much recommend it. Uh, it's Sunday. If you're like me, you've got a lot that you're going to have to do whenever you, you get home, right? I, I very much recommend that. That's good to do the laundry. But what happens is so often we can get caught up in those mundane things of life, in the stuff of life. 
And when we get caught up in the stuff of life, we start to build a target around just getting the stuff done. And then we can get to the end of the week and we can think if we got the laundry caught up, I don't know what that's like, but you can think if you got the laundry caught up that you, you achieved success for the week. If you got the kids safely to practice, if you made it to church before 1045 this morning, then you had success for the week. Because you just got stuff done. And Jesus is saying there's always stuff to be done, but that is never to be our target. If you need to get stuff done, get stuff done, but don't, don't make that the goal. Just make that part of what you do on the way to the right target. The call is to be faithful to the calling God has given you. Let's look at one more, Matthew 25, one more chapter over, Matthew 25, one that, that a lot of you probably know well, verse 14. Talking about the same type of thing, how to be ready at a moment's notice when everything is unexpected. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We'll stop there. You guys know the, the third one who, who didn't invest the talent. Uh, the, the master calls him out and calls him into account and into judgment. The pattern is the same here. These servants have been called to account for what they have been done, or for what they have been given, and what they have done. The two that, that we read are the two that had been deemed faithful servants. What is it that made them faithful? What, what is it that made them faithful? Was it because they liked their master? Nope. Doesn't say anything about whether they liked him or not? Was it because they attended a class on how to best invest the money? Nope. Was it that they had memorized the morning stock market numbers in preparation for a chance to buy stock? No. Was it even that they believed that the boss to be good and that they want to tell everyone how good their boss was? Is that what made them faithful? No, it's not. What made them faithful is what they did with what they were given. Their faith was met with action. Faithfulness is not just some general disposition in our hearts towards God. Something that we can't measure, just this kind of, I really like God, so that must mean that my faith is good. That is not what faithfulness is. Throughout Scripture, when faith is discussed, almost always action is accompanied. You will almost never see the Bible talk about faith without pairing it with action. 
And that's because the essence of faithfulness is that we are acting upon what we have been given. Faith is a gift that produces an action. Listen how Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace you have been given, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you, you, you earn the, the, the joy of the master through your faith. What I'm saying is that that faith has been given to you, not through anything that you've done. You can't boast about this. You're simply carrying out what you have been given. So not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see what Paul says there? He pairs the faith we have been given with the works that we walk in following that. The two are paired together. Even in the the, the primary verse that we would go to to indicate the faith that we have been given, the primary verse that we would go to to say that it is not of anything that we have done, even right there in that context, we are told that works are paired together with faith. Our call is to be faithful, to walk in the good works that God has already prepared for us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says it another way. He says this. He's talking about how all these different people are following all these different preachers, and Paul's trying to say, no, 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 you got the wrong target. The target shouldn't be me, shouldn't be Apollos, it should be something bigger. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word of, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us. This is how you should regard us as preachers, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found, what? Faithful. So, so what Paul says is, look, you, you can listen to whoever you want. We're not playing these games where we're picking sides. The, the thing that matters, the thing that is the most important is, are we as preachers faithful? I would say the same for me. If, if I'm not going to be faithful to the text, you don't need to be here to listen. You follow what comes out of Scripture, and my goal is to be a good steward of that. Just like a a waiter delivers the food straight from the kitchen to you, that is my goal, is to to deliver exactly what's in the text to you in a way that maybe you can see it in a new way and apply it afresh. That is my goal. And if I am not doing that, then I have been, according to Paul here, disqualified. So Paul's talking about preachers here, but this principle uh, uh, applies to all of us. Peter tells us that we are all stewards of God's grace. And as stewards, we are required to be found faithful. And why? Because of exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. Because he who has been given much, much will be required. Even in the Old Testament, the same type of language about faithfulness is present. It's used to call us to desire faithfulness. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart 
so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Faithfulness is the calling. Don't forget the instruction. Be faithful. Psalm 119. Put false, uh, Psalm 119, verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. You cannot escape this language all throughout Scripture. The call is to faithfulness over and over and over again. And therein lies the problem. And you know it before you can even put words to it. Because if I tell you that your call is to faithfulness in season and out of season, as Paul says... We know that we have a problem because our ability to remain steadfast to our promises, our ability to remain steadfast to our resolve, our ability to maintain that faithfulness is at best weak. We fail and we falter. Even in our strongest attempts, we simply find ourselves unable to maintain this call to faithfulness at all times. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, hear me clearly. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that we are to commit all, everything that we have to God, everything to God at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. And it is just as overwhelming a testimony in Scripture that we are utterly incapable of doing that. Our hearts have turned against God, and no matter how hard we try to rid ourselves of the guilt and shame that comes with that, we cannot because we know that we have not been faithful. And this leaves us with a problem. Listen to how Moses contrasts the, the God's faithfulness against Israel's unfaithfulness. Listen, listen to how it says this. See if you can pick up on the contradictions even within these few verses. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord, this is whenever uh, he was giving the Ten Commandments to, to Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping that steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. How does this passage even make sense? How does it even make sense when we read it? He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin but he doesn't clear the guilty. How do those two things work together? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction there just in back-to-back -back verses? There's a lot of ways we could talk about this, but I want to stick with the theme this morning of faithfulness. 
If you go all the way to the other end of Scripture, so go all the way from, from Exodus in the Old Testament to 1 John in the New, this is what 1 John writes. There's what John writes in 1 John, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. John is saying the same thing that Moses did. God is a faithful God. We cannot pretend that we are going to maintain faithfulness. If we do, we make out God to be a liar who has told us clearly we cannot and we do not. So what we need is someone that is faithful and will hear our confession. Enter Jesus. He hears our confession. And he is faithful to forgive us from that sin. But if we go back to what what Moses said, he, he is faithful to forgive, but he will by no means overlook the guilty. So we still got to do something with that. So, so we need him to forgive us, so he hears our confession. But he's still got, he still got to sing with the guilty. So, so, so what's going on? Well, the, the thing is, we don't need just someone that will hear us. We need someone that will atone for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. The the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, is is explaining how the Old Testament system worked and the priest and the, the, the offering for sin. And he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god why did he sit down because his work was done waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified so we have both the person to hear our confession the, po- the person to atone for, for our sins. And when I say atone, this is what I'm talking about. The guilt is atoned for. God does not look over the sins of the guilty. He places the sins of the guilty on Jesus. And He atones. And so the punishment is still there. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. He has heard our confession He has provided our atonement. And now, according to the end of verse 14, He offers us our sanctification. Continue on in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have the great A great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us this exhortation in response. He's laid out the faithfulness of God. We've laid out the faithfulness of God to hear us, to atone for us, to sanctify us. And then what is the response to those things? Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In light of God's faithfulness to us, the writer of Hebrews says, let us be faithful to one another. Meeting together, encouraging one another, walking together in our lives until we hear the final call and the final welcome from Jesus where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, that faithfulness that we are called to, we are called to that because that is the nature of who God is. The entire testimony of Scripture is this, that God is faithful. You want to be amazed at, at, at how often a word pops up in Scripture that you just gloss over? Just look up faithful in your concordance. Do a little word search. Go, on, go online and do a word search for faithful in Scripture. It is all over the place. That is the testimony of Scripture. Like Chris led us so well last week talking about God's patience, the the the. the the, the thing that mirrors perfectly with that, that marries perfectly with that, is that he is faithful. He comes to Abraham, he comes to Moses, he comes to Noah, and he says, I will make a promise to you. And then the rest of the, New Te- or the, rest of the, the, the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament, is him remaining faithful to that promise. He is faithful. As the writer of Hebrews says, he has done it. Faithfulness, friends, that is our target. That is our goal. Our faithfulness in response to His faithfulness. We are not repaying God for His faithfulness, but instead we are to be a people that reflect God's faithfulness. Is that your goal this morning? Was that your goal when you woke up today? As you begin your week, as you press on, students, in this semester, as you look at your spouse and your kids, is your goal faithfulness? And the beautiful thing that the writer of Hebrews gives us is that he tells us that faithfulness, our faithfulness to one another, is ultimately a faithfulness to God. And so we have these dual callings, faithfulness to one another, because that displays faithfulness to God, and then faithfulness to God himself. What is the definition of success in the Christian life? It is faithfulness. Let's make that our target here at Providence. That here in this church, in our relationships with one another, that we reflect the faithfulness of God and our faithfulness to each other. As we prepare to walk out of here, my heart for you is that you would not aim at the wrong thing. That you would not get to the end of your life and you say, I did so well. How did I miss the target? I did what I thought I was supposed to do only to realize you were aiming at the wrong target the whole time. Friends, let us be faithful to one another and faithful to God. Let's pray.
Father, even as I preach these words, I feel my own inadequacies in them. I know how often I fall short to mirror your character to those around me. How often I fall short to mirror your character to my family, to, to, to this church, to so many people around me, even to myself. I just realize how I can be my own arch enemy and traitor to myself. Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, for the blood of Christ that frees me from condemnation in that. Because even though I am ultimately unfaithful, you are faithful. May I cling to that promise and daily seek to reflect that just a little bit more. Father, I cling to the promise that you will be faithful to sanctify my heart. That as I struggle with sin and struggle with the same sin and struggle with trying to eliminate this stuff from my life, I know that you will be faithful. And I put all my hope, all my faith, all my trust in that promise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.